0: You can have a seat. And as you're pulling out your Bible, turning to Colossians chapter 1, tell the person on your right and left, I'm glad that you're here. We have three statements that matter to us here at Bayou City Fellowship, and we will spend the next three weeks, lifting up each one and seeing it from the pages of the scripture. Next week, we will come around statement number two, which is we want to be a church that works for the good of our city and the world. And it's been our heartbeat since day one. You remember what was happening five years ago in the greater Houston area, a bunch of wildfires were spreading around, especially in Montgomery and Waller counties. And we had some connection to what was happening In Waller. And so, the very first offering that we ever took at Bayou City Fellowship five years ago today, half of that went to help people who were affected by those fires. Uh, Two weeks from now, September 25th, we want to take up statement number three that we want to start new churches. There's a level of partnership and togetherness that happens when you're starting a church that I'm not sure can be replicated. Very many other places. Because in the beginning days, everyone is essential. Everyone has to be there or it literally does not work. Before our first service five years ago today, we did a practice service. Because we wanted to be good hosts and we wanted to run through everything. So we practiced everything. We practiced unloading the trailer that had all of our stuff in it. Turning a school into a church. Setting up all of our kids ministry stuff. And then we practiced a service. We practiced Preaching, Uh, we practiced worshiping, we practiced taking up the offering because in a new church, offering is super important, so you don't want to mess that up. (laughs) We practiced everything and then we practiced taking it all down so that we could be ready for the next week. So I remember on that practice day, we got there very, very early in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, probably something very, very early. I remember pulling off the freeway and pulling up to the high school where we were going to be meeting. And I was still a long way off, but I could see the trailer that had all of our equipment in it, and the trailer door was still shut, but there were some people who had gotten there uh, uh, even earlier than I have, and they were standing around in a circle and they were praying. And I thought, "We're going to be just fine." Because this this is the group of people. These are the people that you want to build the church on their backs, the people who will pray for the practice. You meet a lot of people who pray for the real service the next week. Almost everybody would do that. Even if you're not a praying person, you would feel obligated to pray before your church's very first service. But these guys, they prayed before the practice. And there's a level of excitement and togetherness and partnership and all of that that you can't find very many other places. And that's why I'm jealous for everyone in our church who would want to to be a, a part of starting a new Bayou City somewhere in this city. To have that knowledge that I matter and I am essential to what God is doing here. But today we stop to consider statement number one. Number one in priority, number one in order, number one in urgency. We want to be a church with a radical focus on Jesus. You know, the most common approach to Jesus in these days, both in culture and in the church, it seems, is to cut up his characteristics and to serve him a la carte. It's because we love options. And that approach to Jesus gives us options. There's the Jesus who shepherds the weary. There's the Jesus who is a revolutionary taking a stand against empire-styled governments. There's Jesus, your travel agent, to heaven. There's Jesus, an ally for the poor, Jesus, the forgiver of the shame, Jesus, who reprimands the overly religious, Jesus, a force for justice, Jesus, who welcomes outsiders. So we take him apart and we serve ourselves a Jesus that never asks us more than we want to give, who aligns with our needs and our views every time, who fits neatly within the spaces that we have carved out for him in the lives that we are building. Yet the scripture will show us this morning that he deserves the preeminent position, the highest place, both in the church and in our lives. But we need to start with Jesus. Did Jesus believe this about himself? Because if Jesus did not see himself as preeminent or as highest, then we don't need to bother to either. If he only saw himself as a very great teacher, then we are not expected to see him as more than teacher. If he just was one guy standing up to the man, then all we need to do is to follow in those steps, but we don't need to gather every single morning or Sunday morning to sing songs to him. How did Jesus see himself? Well, this is just a short list, but first he claimed to be the exclusive way to God. John chapter 14, verse six, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one gets to the father except through me. He said, I'm the door. You wanna get to God? You gotta go through me. He claimed his disciples should love him more than their mothers, fathers, and children. Imagine somebody in your life saying that to you, that I demand that you love me more than the people who are closest to you. He claimed the ability to forgive sins, which would have been outrageous for someone who did not see themselves equal to God. He claimed to be the judge of all nations. He claimed the disciples could do nothing apart from him. The Apostle Paul picks up on what Jesus started in seeing in this way in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. It says he is the image of the invisible God. This is Jesus we're speaking of. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And remember on our way out this morning, first, Jesus deserves the highest place, both in the church and in our lives, because he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. That's what verse... 15 says, he is the visible expression of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter one echoes these ideas. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. In Jesus, God is manifest. He is present. He is noble. When you think about the people in your life and how they view and see God, most of them are viewing him with two D words, distant and demanding. That's how most people you know think about God. He's distant, he's far away, he's unknowable, he's unreachable. But he seems to be demanding a lot of specific things from my life. But in Christ, what we see is God is not distant. John chapter one, verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God. The only son who is at the father's side, he has made him known. Colossians 1, for in him, that's Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell In chapter two, verse nine, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So when we talk about Jesus, we are talking about more than phenomenal and powerful teacher. We're talking about more than just a servant of humanity. We are speaking of the very revelation of God. Jesus himself believed this. He said in John chapter 14, verse nine, whoever has seen me has seen the father. And in chapter 10, verse 30, I and the father are one. So when you and I seek and find Jesus, we have found God. Therefore, he deserves the highest and preeminent place, both in the church and in our lives. Number two, Jesus deserves the highest place because he is Lord of creation. Verse 15, Colossians chapter one says he is the firstborn of creation. Does this mean that Jesus was the first thing that God made? Jehovah's Witnesses interpret this passage that way. But the word firstborn is used eight times in the New Testament. Only two of those times does the phrase or term firstborn refer to chronological order, literally, the first one born in a family. It's used in a metaphorical way, just like the Apostle Paul is using it here. Something similar happens in the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 89 speaks of King David, who we know was not the first king of Israel, but it says in verse 27, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So Paul is using the Jewish understanding of the term firstborn. It means the highest, the best, priority, power, privilege. Then Paul goes on in verse 16, for by him, all things were created in the words of one theologian. If the father is the architect of creation, then the son is the foreman. John chapter one, verse three, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In Hebrews one again in verse two, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, whom also he created the world. He is Lord of creation because he created creation. But Jesus is also continually sustaining creation. Verse 17 of chapter one, Colossians. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Again, in Hebrews one, it says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We see Jesus manipulating nature, being Lord over it in the gospels. Even at his birth, what happens? A star, which is normally fixed in its place, the planets rotate. The stars say the same, but not for Jesus. The stars moved so that it could shine just over Bethlehem so the Magi could find him. Big storm on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus and his disciples are in the middle of it in a boat. He steps up to the front, tells the storm to be quiet, and it is. Same sea, a little bit later, Jesus decides to walk on the water as if walking on pavement. He takes a few pieces of fish, few pieces of bread feeds 5,000 people. The Disciples, professional fishermen, they can't catch anything. But at Jesus's word, they try a different strategy. They catch more than they can bring in. He is Lord over creation. Then the apostle Paul makes a list of some of the things that Jesus created in verse 16. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or... Or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now, Paul uses this list in other places, in other places that he would write, and they refer to invisible and evil supernatural powers. But then he follows it up with that phrase, all things. So he is saying that Jesus is Lord of every power, whether good or evil, visible or invisible. He is the Lord of every power structure, and that includes this current election that we are in. Jesus is Lord of what we're seeing unfold in front of us. Because eventually every political player will give glory to Jesus. And this election will ultimately work out for the glory of Jesus. So this informs the way that we interact with it, which I have to be honest. I don't think we're doing that well as Christians interacting with this election. Jesus is Lord over it, over every power structure, over every future power structure. So this informs what we do. I think that we should care. I think that we should be concerned, but I think we should be confident. I think we should care. Uh, God is not honored and Jesus is not glorified. When politics start being the topic of conversation and we go, uh, who cares? Who cares? I don't care about any of that. I don't vote. I don't do the thing. Who cares? I don't think that makes the Christian faith look attractive to anybody. I think you should care. But I think you should be concerned. I think there are some things being done and things that are being said in this election cycle that as a person who stands for righteousness in Jesus' name, they should bother you. I think you should be concerned, but I think you should be confident because you and I know at the end of all of this, this will result in glory for Jesus. And no matter who wins the election, that is the side we are on. The side that gives glory to Jesus. That's our goal, our primary objective. And in verse 16, he ends talking about creation by saying all things were created for. Him. It's like the famous quote from Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Jesus, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Four separate times in Philippians, Paul uses the phrase or the word sake in chapter one, verse 29. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Chapter three, verse seven, Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And in verse eight, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them in rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So if Jesus is Lord over creation, if we were made for him, then more and more of my life is handed over to him for his sake. For his sake, we resist temptation. For his sake, we love our enemies. For his sake, we live with generosity. For his sake, I'm not gonna date that person. For his sake, we're not gonna sleep together. For his sake, we're gonna stay married. For his sake, we're gonna reconcile with our children. This is what discipleship is. More and more of what I do is for his sake. And that's why he deserves the highest and preeminent place in the church and in our lives. Number three, Jesus deserves the highest place in the church because he is Lord of the church. Doesn't seem like rocket science, does it? What should be our highest statement here? Who should have the highest place? Well, the Bible says Jesus has the highest place in the church. Well, let's just go with that. Just always default to scripture whenever you are in doubt. Jesus deserves the highest place because he is Lord of the church. Next, Jesus deserves the highest place because he is Lord of the grave. Verse 18, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Paul uses that phrase firstborn again, and he used it, uses it in the same way that he did before, not referring to chronological order. We know that because even in the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha raised a few people from the dead. Jesus himself had raised Lazarus from the dead and a young man who had passed away who was the son of a widow in a little town called Nain. Firstborn again means highest and preeminent. He is Lord over the grave. Death in the scripture is referred to as a curse. It's referred to as a wage. It's referred to as an enemy. And we know that instinctively. Every human knows that death is the enemy. That's where all of our self-help stuff comes from. That's where all of our fad workouts and dieting comes from, Because we know there's an enemy out there and we want to put as much time in between us and that enemy as we possibly can. So we try all these things. I remember that I didn't put on the freshman 10. You know, when you go to college, you, you, don't, you put on 10 pounds or whatever. I didn't do that. I put on the marriage 25. And no one was telling me, no one was loving me enough to say, hey, I've been looking at you and your hair is getting thinner. You are not. No, nope, nobody pulled me aside to mentor me. Took a glance in the mirror one day, realized it for myself. South Beach diet was a big, thing at that time. I'm sure you're young, you don't remember that, but. So I went to Barnes & Noble, bought the South Beach Diet book. I read it an entire day because I'm committed to this health thing. Which buying the book at Barnes & Noble, you know, it was like 12 bucks. I didn't really have a job at the time. I don't think I was finished in college. Amanda had a good job, but it was an entry-level job. And so I think I spent like a fourth of our income on a $12 book Bought it, read, read it all in one day. But then you read the South Beach Diet book. Then you gotta buy the South Beach Diet food. So I go to the grocery store. Of course, I haven't told Amanda about any of this because every man knows if you wanna do something that you thought about, don't say it out loud to your wife because she's gonna bring wisdom in and shut you down every time. So if you wanna do something done, you just don't tell her. Then you get you know, in trouble for it later because they're always right. So I go to the grocery store, I buy all these groceries, buy a bunch of fruit, a bunch of vegetables. I buy salmon. I've never eaten salmon one day in my life, but I'm suddenly gonna learn how to cook salmon. I buy salmon, I bring it back home. And of course she gets home from work, sees what I have wrought. And uh, I'm like, yeah, I'm going on a South Beach diet. And I was committed to it. And I started the South Beach diet that night and I finished it that morning. I still have not eaten salmon. (laughs) But it's pink, you know? So I don't think men should eat pink food. I think just in general, that's a thing. But we do these things. You know, there's one thing about being healthy and we should all be healthy. And and that's, that's a good thing to honor God with our bodies. But the level of urgency that we see about these things in our culture, it's not about health. It's about there's an enemy out there and my soul knows it. And I'm trying to put distance in between me and that enemy. But Jesus says in Revelation chapter one, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus' resurrection won for him, victory over death and hell. And because he was raised, he said, I'm gonna raise all of you up. First Corinthians chapter 15 Verse 51 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. So these things are a little bit hard to explain. And Paul tells us that up front. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment. Meaning there are some people who are going to be alive on the earth when Jesus returns, but everyone else who has come before that moment will have passed away, will have gone to sleep. And in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet when Jesus returns, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Then when that happens, This scripture is true. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I read these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this summer, standing next to my grandfather's casket at his graveside service before we put him in the ground. And as I was reading them that day, it, it comforted my soul that one day his body would be resurrected. Now I have no doubt, and I had no doubt in that moment that my grandfather's soul and spirit was immediately with the Lord. The moment he took his last breath here, he was in the presence of Jesus in what Jesus called paradise to the thief on the cross. I had no doubt about that, but there was something comforting to me standing next to his casket at his memorial service to know that that body that I had cared about and loved hugged so many times, I would be reunited with that body. That face that was always scratchy even when he had a fresh shave. Those rough hands from working with those hands every day of his life. The way he would stand and lean on his cane. That body was comforting to me to know that when Jesus returned that body would be resurrected. And his body and his spirit and soul would be reunited. You're like, well, how does any of that work? I don't know, it's a mystery. How old will they be? Will they be young and vibrant or will they be the age that I remember them the most? These are all mysteries that we don't understand. But what we do know is that the grave does not have the final say because Jesus is Lord of the grave. And that's why he deserves the highest and preeminent place in both the church And our lives. And then the last thing, Jesus deserves the highest place because he is reconciling all things, including us, to himself. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There needs to be reconciliation because peace has been broken by sin. There is vertical brokenness, there is a divide. Because of sin between God and man, there is horizontal brokenness. Sin divides people. Even creation has been broken. Romans chapter eight, verse 22 says that creation, nature cries out, groaning, longing to be set free from the slavery that sin has subjected it to. And how does all this happen? It happens in Christ that God is reconciling all things by the blood of the cross. He is a reconciler. Therefore deserves highest preeminent place. Another way to say preeminent is unrivaled. There have been some pretty great rivalries throughout history. Apple versus Microsoft, the Yankees versus the Red Sox, the University of Texas versus Texas A&M. Oh, that's that's weak sauce right there. That's weak. That's weak. I was going to give it to you because things are going well for you right now in these first two weeks of college football, but that's fine. (laughs) But there is no greater rivalry than the rivalry between two German brothers that you've never heard of, Adi and Rudolf Dassler. Their conflict was so extreme that it managed to tear apart their business, their family, and even an entire town. The pair first rose to prominence in the 1920s as the owners of the Dassler Brothers Shoe Company, but their company later splintered after they had an infamous uh, falling out during World War II. It was a misunderstanding. One of them was criticizing an allied airplane that was coming by, and the other brother thought he was being criticized along with his wife, and they never got over it. By 1948, the Dasslers had split their businesses into two now famous companies. Rudy launched Puma, while Adi started a brand dubbed Adidas or Adidas after his own first and last names. Both businesses set up shop in the same German town and began an intense rivalry for worldwide market share and celebrity endorsements. Over time, the city became fiercely divided between the two companies and there were restaurants and businesses who would only serve Adidas workers and there were restaurants and businesses who would only serve Puma workers. Eventually in 2009, Puma and Adidas, the companies reconciled. They had a ceremony of reconciliation, but the brothers never did settle their differences before their deaths in the 1970s. And in keeping with their feud, they were laid to rest on opposite sides of the same cemetery. Here's the main idea for today. Jesus deserves the preeminent position, the highest place. He is unrivaled. And when all is said and done, there will not be two sides. There will be no divisions of businesses, of towns, of families. Everyone and everything will recognize, confess and glorify Jesus as Lord. Everything in heaven, everything on earth, everything that's visible, everything that's invisible, every person, government, throne, dominion, ruler, authority, everyone alive and everyone dead will confess, recognize, believe, glorify Jesus as Lord. So when asking ourselves who or what should have preeminent, highest place in the church and in our lives, there can only be one answer, Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we honor you and we worship you for who you are, for all that you've done. Order our lives so that you can receive glory. For your sake, I pray is a phrase, we will say more and more and more and more. God, I believe it's true that I can say that five years of Bayou City Fellowship, I love Jesus more today than on day one. And I pray that another five years from now, together as a family, we will grow to love him even more and more and more. can only do this by your own power and strength. We ask for that now in Jesus' name. Amen.